Go ahead and take God's Word in your hands and turn to the book of Amos. We have been, over these last couple months of the summer, exploring this often neglected Old Testament book found in the middle of the minor prophets. Amos, a man who was called by God, who was an ordinary man. We are told about Amos that he was a shepherd and a caretaker of sycamore trees. He was from the land uh, of uh, uh, Judah, lived in a city named Tekoa, not far from Jerusalem and even closer to the city of Bethlehem, and God was going to take this man of obscurity, this man seemingly living an average life, and he was going to call him and compel him to do something that he had never thought probably that he would do. He was not of a lineage of prophets. He was not of a lineage of, of, of great men and women. He was a man probably like many of us, going about life working and doing life with his family and his friends. And God would uniquely call him to something. And that's a great reminder for us as we uh, close out this book that Amos is a reminder that God calls ordinary people to extraordinary things. But before we get all excited about those uh, things that God may be calling us to, we recognize that what God was calling Amos to was something that would be altogether unpopular and altogether une- make people uneasy because he was going to preach and proclaim the judgment of God that was coming to the people of Israel. His job was to be one who would warn the people of Israel of a coming calamity if they did not turn and repent of their sins and turn back to God. And over and over again in this series, we have seen God give warning upon warning upon warning only to have a stiff-necked and rebellious people say no to God all the while playing religion with God along the way. Now, Amos' message is one of incredible conviction, one of great clarity. Return to God before it's too late. Though he would live eight centuries before Christ, that message resounds to our world today, to all of creatures, all men and women of the world, to return to God, to turn from your sin before it's too late. And God has told us over and over again that if we do not return to God, judgment and destruction will come upon us. And as we see God's faithfulness amidst those promises of judgment upon the nation of Israel, it should remind us that if we do not get right with God, we should only expect his judgment and calamity to come our way as we learned about last week when it comes to the day of the Lord. So Amos comes, and God has been gracious. God has given Amos messages. God has been gracious and long-suffering to his people, that with each of the messages, there's been time to repent. God has given visions to Amos, visions that show the calamity that is about to befall the people of Israel, an opportunity for them to change course. But as we're learning, Israelites don't do that. And as a result, God has a final word, a word of great sorrow to his people. Probably the most unique warning that is given amongst the people of God, he places it before them as an opportunity for them to change course. This morning we're going to be looking at Amos chapter 9. And it's going to start out really, really ugly once again. This book has been filled with doom and gloom. But at the end of the message and at the end of this series, Amos is given a glimpse, a vision of days that are coming 
that promises to knock your socks off. And they are words to encourage the faithful, a remnant that will rise up out of this time of great difficulty for the people of Israel. But before we get there, let's look to the text this morning and read from Amos chapter 9, starting in verse 1. We'll read the entirety of the chapter. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar, and he said, Strike the capitals until the thresholds shake, and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there shall my hand take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord, God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts and all who dwell in it mourn and all of it rises like the Nile and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt. This God who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth. This God who calls the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth, the Lord is his name. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaftor and the Syrians from Ker? Behold, the eyes of the Lord are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground, except that I will not destroy, utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among the nations as one shakes with a sieve. But no pebble shall fall to the earth, all the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. In that day, I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen and repair its breaches and raise up its ruins and rebuild it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations who are called by my name, declares the Lord who does this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him who sows the seed. The mountain shall drip sweet wine and the hills shall flow with it. I will restore the fortunes of my people Israel. And they shall rebuild the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine. And they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. I will plant them on their land. And they shall never again be uprooted. Out of the land that I have given them, says the Lord your God. That concludes Amos's message. Let's ask God's blessing on the reading and preaching of God's word and we'll jump into our text this morning. Father God, we ask for your blessing. It has been good to be in your house. Thank you for the incredible testimony of Tim and Nicole and how you have changed them. And Lord, a reminder that you're in the changing business. 
And that you're calling people, even back in Amos' day, to yourself. And even today, you're calling people to yourself through your Son, Jesus Christ. Lord, let us hear that message this morning. Let us hear that call, that invitation, so that we may experience what life truly is like in you. And that we may then, Lord, be kept from the hour of wrath that is to come. Lord, we know you are faithful. And we know whether your words are ones we want to hear or words that, quite frankly, cause us great fear. That because you've said them, they will come to fruition. And so we believe by faith what you have to say to us this morning and ask your blessing on our time. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen and amen. Well, we are in the dog days of summer. The end of July, school is right around the corner, kids. I'm sorry to say that. But we are in the dog days of summer, and as a baseball fan, the end of July is a significant time for us as baseball uh, lovers. For uh, baseball, the end of July is the trading deadline where teams have to make a decision. You see, much of the season has already taken place. There's two months left of the Major League Baseball season before the postseason begins. And teams have to ask the question, are we in a good place to play in the postseason or have uh, this year, has this year, this year been unfavorable to us? Now, the reason why the end of July is so important is is the last opportunity for teams to trade players and to make their team better or their future better without having to go through the arduous process of waivers. And so there are two types of teams in baseball right now. Teams that are asking the question or are asking, how can our team get better? Because we're going for a World Series this year. There's a team in Chicago that's going that direction. We call them buyers. They're looking for players to trade for to make their team better. Then there are teams that are called sellers. These are the teams that haven't done so well this year, and there's really little to no chance that they're going to make the postseason. We have a team in Chicago in that scenario. We will leave them nameless. But they are selling because they're recognizing our future isn't bright. We need to do something. We need to change things in order to allow maybe not this year, but next year to be our year. Now, all of that in that opening illustration is to say that in life... We have mid-course corrections. At points in our life, just like in the baseball season, we have to ask the question, is our future, the trajectory of our lives, is it heading towards victory or defeat? And as a 43-year-old man, I can tell you that I am at a unique spot in my life where I have to start asking the question, are there mid-course corrections that need to take place? I've got enough time in my past that I know where I've been, and I've still got quite a future ahead of me, but it's hard to teach old dogs new tricks, and so mid-course corrections can be costly. But if we want the victory in the future, it means changes have to take place in the present. The book of Amos, chapter 9, is one last opportunity for the people of God to make a mid-course correction. 
to change the trajectory of their lives. And God is going to share two truths with them that they need to think through. And when they come face to face with these two truths are going to then cause them to understand the third truth we're going to talk about, and that is evaluate where they're at in life. And is the course of their life getting them closer to God or farther from God. And God's going to say a couple things. He's going to say, a life apart from me is going to end in tragedy, but a life with me is going to end in triumph. Now, you've got to ask the question, what kind of future do you want? And Amos is going to articulate these truths, and sadly, as we read the rest of the Bible... The people of Israel, the vast majority of the nation of Israel, would rather choose tragedy and do it themselves than live a life of triumph with God. So they remain rebellious and they remain doing their own thing. And as a result, the judgment that God was proclaiming to them will soon befall them. So let's look at these truths and ask the question as, an exa- as, as the example of Israel before us, how are we living? What are we pursuing, and is there a mid-course correction for us in light of the warnings and promises of God? Truth number one, I've already articulated to you. Truth number one is that life apart from God will lead to tragedy. Over these last nine chapters, Amos has clearly articulated that God is altogether unhappy with how the nation of Israel has lived how they've gone about doing life. Now, the one sin, and there's many sins, but if there was one sin to filter all of Israel's sins into, was that Israel had made a decision that they were going to live life apart from God. That they were going to go their own way instead of following His. Can I tell you that that is the overarching uh, sin of all of humanity? That instead of living life with God, We would rather choose to live it apart from God. That was the great sin in the Garden of Eden. God was having a relationship with Adam and Eve. He was enjoying fellowship with them and unfettered access to them. And Adam and Eve made a decision. Instead of having a relationship and life with God, they were tempted to think that they could live life apart from God. And that's exactly what they did. The prophet Isaiah says, we all like sheep have gone astray, each one of us going our own way. Instead of following God, instead of living in relationship with him, we come and we are tempted away by all myriads of things to go our own way. And in doing so, we choose to live life apart from God. Now, right away you say, but wait a minute, how far were these people apart from God? They, as we read in the text some weeks earlier, they went to God, they pursued God in worship, they, they uh, went to temple, they were involved in giving tithes and offerings to the God, they were engaged in the different festivals that took place. But what God says is, listen, your religious activity doesn't mean that you're in relationship with me. Can I tell you today, myriads upon myriads of people will enter into houses of worship thinking that they are living life with God, but all God is to them is a means to an end. And they view God not as the master of the universe, not the savior and lord of their lives, but they see him as a way to get something else. And that's what the Israelites were doing. 
The Israelites saw God as something that got them something that was for their good. And so they went about living life apart from God. Now, notice a couple things with regards to this. A truth about living life apart from God involves a couple things. First of all, it involves not hearing from God. In chapters 3, 4, and 5, God announces, literally he says, and, and I know we've got children in here, but what he says is, Israel, shut up and listen. Shut up and listen. Stop doing it your own way. Stop thinking you're so smart. I want you to shut your mouth, and I want you to listen. God has a word for his people. And life apart from God says, I don't need God. I can do it my own way. And so I don't need to listen to what God has to say. But he goes even farther. And he says amidst all of their celebrations, all of their offerings, all of their services that they're a part of, in Amos chapter 3 verse 10 we are told that the people of Israel did not know how to do right. They didn't know how to live right. And so what did they do? They stored up violence against the vulnerable and, and the poor. And though they went about doing their duty of religion, there was no relationship there. And as a result, they went about their own way, following the gods, small g, the gods of the neighboring countryside and communities. And they began to worship that God. And God said, okay, I love you. Are you not my people? Are you not the ones that I rescued from Egypt? And if that's the case, then my promises are sure and right. And so I'm going to give you opportunity to right the wrong. That though it is understandable for the pagan world to live life apart from God, surely it is not for the people of the patriarchs and the covenants and the law of Moses to do so. And so by his grace, he sends Amos to a people that are far from God so that Amos can speak into their life. And what Amos does is he warns the people of Israel of what happens to people when they live life apart from God. And he begins to share these visions, these ghastly visions of what will come, the calamity and the destruction that comes upon people who live life apart from God. Now, let's remember what God calls those people. He calls them enemies of his. Now, right away you say, but wait a minute, Israel is experiencing in the days of Amos some of the best prosperity they've ever experienced in their history. Well, that is because of God's long-suffering and God's patience and God's common grace that he shows all the world. That is why, quite frankly, some of your unsaved neighbors and family and co-workers are living a better life now than maybe you are as a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. You see, God says, will I not pour out my rain upon the believer and non-believer alike? But what he says is, amidst your present security, amidst your present prosperity, is a day that is coming. And for them, it was a day that was coming when the Babylonian Empire would come about 40 years after Amos' series of messages and come and destroy Israel and take all of its inhabitants and take them as exiles and as slaves into Babylon. And it would leave Israel as a wasteland. 
And, and what transpires here in our text is what God wants to teach us about that day. And he says three things about that day that happened in uh, the 7th century before Christ. But it also reminds us that there's a day coming that God says, just like the day of judgment that Israel experienced, that there's a day of judgment coming. And these three truths about that day of calamity was true in Amos' day, and it's true for the day that is to come. Three truths about that tragedy that's going to befall them. Number one, it's inevitable. It's inevitable. Notice in chapter 8, verse 11, God says, Behold, the days are coming. You can mark it down. It's iron-clad. This day is going to come, and I've already set it on my calendar. And if you want to not fall prey to this day, you need to repent. Now he's given invitations over and over again. Seek me and live, he says, on two different uh, times earlier in our text. Seek me. There's opportunity. But they have re- reneged on those opportunities. And as a result... The only thing that they can look forward to is a day on God's calendar where they will experience his judgment. Now right away you say, okay, that's understandable in Amos chapter 9, but what about us? Well, Peter, I'm sorry, not Peter, Paul reminds us in Acts 17 on the uh, Mars Hill sermon, he articulates this truth. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Why? Paul goes on, because God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and that this he has given assurance to raising Jesus Christ from the dead. And so there's a future day. Just as the day came to the people in Amos' day, there's a future day where God will bring judgment. And now this season of in-between is the opportunity for all men everywhere to repent. But it's going to happen. It's inevitable. Number two, it's inescapable. Notice chapter nine. He begins to unveil what it's going to be like. He says in verse one that God is going to strike the capitals until the thresholds shake. The idea here is he is going to hit every element of Israel's life. The capitals is a phrase in the Hebrew that literally means places of authority. And so it's political authority. He's going to destroy the, the ruler, uh, the ruling um, kingdom of Jeroboam is going to collapse. He also speaks of it as a spiritual authority. The temples will be destroyed. They had temples that they had built throughout the nation of Israel. They would all be destroyed. The commerce would be destroyed. All of these capitals will fall on their head. But notice it goes on. It's inescapable because he says in verse 1, none of them shall flee away. None of them shall escape. Now they'll run and they'll try to get away from it and notice what God says. If you dig into Sheol, that's the underworld, I'll find you. If you climb up to heaven, 
I'll find you. If you try to go to the highest mountain on Carmel, I will find you. If you seek to go to the bottom of the sea, I will find you. If you're free, I'll find you. If you're in captivity, I will find you. Wherever you go, listen to what he says, and it's important you hear this. If you are under the wrath of God, if you are an enemy of God because you are living life apart from God, then listen very carefully. Nothing can separate you from the wrath of God. Now, wait a minute. That means because of Jesus Christ, brothers and sisters, that because of Christ, nothing can separate us from the love of God. Now, that's the great exchange. God says, listen, if you don't have Christ in your life, if you are not walking with God, then there is nothing that can separate you from my wrath. But the great truth that we have as believers is because of Jesus Christ, there is now nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. And the same terminology that Paul uses, neither height nor depth, right? And he goes through all of these different things, these uh, the the polar opposites in the spectrum of things, life, death, heights, depths, angels, demons, whatever. Nothing can separate us. But as a person who's living life apart from God, the only thing that you can expect is the wrath and judgment of God. Nothing can separate. You can't can't flee it. You can't run away from it. But notice there's one final truth about this judgment. It is insurmountable. Amidst the stern warnings from God, can you believe that though God had spoken clearly through his prophet, people didn't believe. Notice verse 11 of chapter 9. There were people who said, disaster shall not overtake us or meet us. So they sat there, they listened to Amos, and Amos says, hey, turn, return to God, seek him and live. And they're like, hey, listen, Amos, stop with all of the doomsday. Stop talking as if God's going to hurt us. Because listen, God's not going to hurt us. Disaster's not going to fall upon us. We've got great houses. We've got walled cities. We've got all the security we need. We feel totally and utterly secure that nothing can befall us. Sounds like many people that we work and live with today, right? We share with them the coming calamity that will come upon people who live life apart from God. And they say, I'm okay. I'm good. And even if there is a God, I'll figure out what I'm going to say to God as if there's some uh, great master in the way of communication. I'll stand before God and I'll communicate and I'll talk my way into heaven if there is a God. But God makes it abundantly clear. Not only can you not escape it, but then he gives kind of a resume of himself in verses 5 and 6. And he says, for you who think that I'm not being honest, if you think that I can't do these things, notice what he says. The Lord, God of hosts, is the one who touches the earth and it melts. He is the one who builds his upper chambers in the heavens, verse 6, and founds his vault upon the earth. He's the one who calls the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. 
Literally what, what is being said there is God uh, planted the oceans by taking a pitcher and pouring it out onto the foundations of the world. So the Pacific Ocean, that's half a pitcher. Atlantic, a quarter of a pitcher. We don't forget about the Indian Ocean. Let's pour that in. All of the seas and all that. That's how big God is. And if you think, oh feeble man or feeble woman, that you are going to escape or somehow transcend this judgment, God says, this is who I am. You cannot escape my judgment and don't think you'll be able to flee away from it. Tough words to hear. Once again, words that many of us don't want to hear. But God is a righteous and holy God. And he demands worship from his creation. And when they don't, and here's the reason why he becomes so angry. He has created this world. He has given us everything we need. He has given us life and breath. He's given us loved ones. He's given us the ability to enjoy life. He has done all of this for us. For us to turn and say, you know what? Thanks for all of these things. But if you think you and I are going to have a relationship, you've got another thing coming. I want nothing to do with you, but I'm going to enjoy all the things that you've given me. And for a while, God is patient. For a while, God relents. For a while and for a season, God gives opportunity. And we think that that's because God's asleep at the wheel. We think because maybe God's lost control of it. But God makes it clear, don't presume upon my patience and my long-suffering as being anything more than I desire all people to come to repentance and I want to see none perish. But... The verse after that in 2 Peter says, but on that great day of the Lord, he will destroy and refine with fire all the works and, and all of the worlds. And so there's a moment. So maybe today you're living life apart from God, and I want you, as Amos has said, and as Paul has said, and now in a much less insignificant, in a much more significant, insignificant way, I have said that that type of life you're living will lead you to tragedy. Now, amidst all of that dark storm clouds and doom and gloom that we've heard for eight and a half chapters, a ray of sunlight comes. And in verse 11, it seems that the storm is gone and brightness of the skies begins to envelop. In verse 11, he says, but in that day I will raise up the booth of David that has fallen. What that means is amidst the calamity, something new is going to start. In the midst of the tragedy, something great is going to transpire. And that great thing is the second truth that we must know, and that is life with God ends in triumph. Well, there are some who will experience great tragedy, and the Bible says broad is the way that leads to destruction, there will be a remnant, a smaller group of the whole, who will experience the love of Christ, not the wrath of God, because they listened to the warnings of God and repented and obeyed God when he laid forth his warnings to not live apart for him, from him, but to live with him. 
And it is there that though judgment is coming for the vast majority, there are things coming for this remnant, this minority, that will knock their socks off. And so he begins to say what will happen. Notice in verse 11, he's going to raise up the booth of David. We'll talk about that in a moment. He's going to repair its breaches. He's going to rebuild its cities as in the days of old. He says, behold, the days are coming. And then in verses 13, 14, and 15, he literally talks agriculture. And he says, you will be in a perpetual state of harvest because things will be so good that the planter will be running into the harvester. That usually doesn't happen, right? You've got the planter planting in the spring and the harvest planting or, uh, harvesting in the fall. They don't run into each other. But in this season, it will be a time of utter production that as a result of that, the planter and the reaper will be running into one another. It will be such a great time that the mountain will pour forth wine. And it's this picture of absolute productivity and favor. But notice it says, behold, in verse 13, the days are coming. They're coming. They're not here yet. They're coming. And so this remnant has a job to do. This remnant lives in the present with the future in mind. And what they're living in light of is what has been promised to them to take hold in the future. But that promise of the future has bearings on their present life. It has bearing on how they live life, how they uh, do life, and how they make decisions, and how they worship, and, and go about treating other people. And the reason why is God has said something about the future that this remnant that Amos speaks of will live differently. They will live obediently. Do you see the connection this morning to the remnant of Amos and the remnant of Christians today? Are we not a people who are living in the present with the hope of a promise of tomorrow? And that we order our life not on what it does for us in the moment, but because of the great and precious promises God has promised us in the future, that those promises of, of blessing and those promises of paradise and those blessings of, of goodness that await the people of God, that those blessings that we've not experienced yet in their fullness are what make us live the way we do. It is the reason we love the way we do and forgive the way we do and serve the way we do. And give the way we do. Because God has promised something in the future. Now, right away, I need to be honest with you and tell you that this passage isn't as clear as simply that. And many would simply apply this and say, okay, God's got something in the future. And we don't need to deal with any of the interpretive issues that are going on in the text. But I want you to know, scholars would say, of the last part of the book of Amos chapter 9, biblical scholars would say it's one of the most difficult passages to interpret. And here's the question that they want to know. Who gets those promises? Who gets to live the things that are lived out from verse 11 to verse 15? 
And there's great debate, and, and people have held positions all over the place. And I'm going to give you four of the leading uh, ways that people interpret this, and then I'm going to explain what I believe it to be uh, and leave you to your own Bible study to figure it out. But the first way that we need to look at these promises is to ask the question, are they being set forth promises that are given away specifically to a group of people? Specifically. Now, follow along with me. This is Bible study that's happening here. So the first group of scholars say what's happening here is it is a promise that though the people of Israel are soon going to be gobbled up by the nation of Babylon and taken in exile to Babylon, that that exile will only will have a start, but it will also have a finish to it. And that's true to what the Old Testament says. For 200 years, the people of Israel are in exile in Babylon. And the nation of Israel lay like a wasteland. But in the days of Jeremiah, remember Jeremiah 29, 70 years of exile and it will be over. And then God shares, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper and give you a future and a bright hope. And then what happens is Jeremiah's prophecy comes to fruition and 70 years takes place and God begins releasing people out of exile from Babylon, people like Nehemiah and Haggai to go and rebuild the city of Jerusalem and rebuild the temple uh, that was once destroyed and the people inhabit it. And so there's a group of people that say what is transpiring is specific to this generation of people. The exile will come, but it will go and you'll restore your lands and it'll be a great time. The second way that they interpret it is to say, no, it's not per se for that exile, because let's be honest, the exile never really gets over, because as we will see in the days of Jesus, the nation of Israel, while living in their land, don't own their land, don't rule their land. In fact, they are under the rule in Jesus' day of what group of people? The Romans. So it can't be a fulfillment there. So it must be that there is a future fulfillment for Israel that then means that at some point they will receive all the land and opportunities. And what this group of scholars will do is look at 1948 upon the completion of the uh, Second World War. All of these Jewish individuals have nowhere to go. They're fleeing persecution. And the United Nations comes up with this idea to rebuild a state of Israel. And a couple million Jews flock to Israel. And what is articulated by these sets of scholars is, is what now is transpiring is the beginning before our very eyes. The beginning of what God is doing in restoring the nation of Israel. That they now have their own nation and they now will never be uprooted. Now, I want you to know that theology comes with incredible politics. And if you want to see that come to fruition, it is this interpretation of the book of Amos that caused many of our past presidents to always promise to move the embassy of Israel to Jerusalem instead of Tel Aviv. Now that has just recently transpired under the presidency of President Trump. And it's this kind of thinking that says to America, if we want to be on God's side, whatever Israel does... We've got to be for it. And we've got to take care of them. And we've got to, because what's happening today in modern day Israel is a fulfillment of the restoration of Israel. Now, others who would 
fight back on that, would use the phrase uh, that is given, notice in verse 7, are not you, speaking of Israel, like the Cushites, like the Egyptians? Are you not like me, O people of Israel? And he begins to say, listen, yes, you're my people, but if you think being my people gives you carte blanche to do what you want, you've got something else coming. And so be very wary of giving a a carte blanche, if you will, or a a free get-out-of-jail card to everything Israel does, because God himself is saying, just because you may be my people doesn't mean you can do whatever you want that you can ravage the world or you can destroy people at a whim. And so that's the first interpretation. Let's move a little quicker through the next three. Then there's a second one, and it's a spiritual one. And what scholars look at this text and say, okay, the promises are going to come true, but they're going to be fulfilled through the church, not Israel. And what is being articulated here is the fulfillment of the church which replaces Israel in these days. And it is through the church that this will take place. Notice the phrase in verse 11, the booth of David that has fallen, God will raise up. Well, where did he raise that up? Well, he asked Peter, who do people say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And he says, you are Peter, and upon this rock, that truth, I'm going to build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. It sure sounds like what Amos is articulating is what's going to transpire, that these days are coming when this new thing, the church, will rise up, and it will never be uprooted. That's the second interpretation. The third interpretation is that it has to do um, with salvation. And so I use the phrase salifically, okay? That means it pertains to salvation. And what its meaning is, is that it has nothing to do with Israel or the church. It just has to do with the remnant of believers, people, who are going to be repaired and restored and raised up and rebuilt. And it's, again, a spiritual idea that the way that God is doing this is the salvation of people. Jesus came, and he came to seek and to save that which was lost. He came to uh, heal the lame and to give sight to the blind. And so what's being transpired here is this idea that God is restoring people through salvation. Finally... It can be viewed scripturally. And when I use the phrase scripturally, doesn't mean that I'm saying it's the right one. But what these scholars would say, it's none of the three, but it's according to our passage that we studied not too long ago, Acts 15, write this passage down, Acts 15, uh, starting in verse 16 and 17, where James, during the Jerusalem council, asking the question, what are we to do with these Gentiles who are having experiences with Jesus Christ? Wasn't this a Jewish thing we were doing? Now we've got these Gentiles coming into the fold, and James says... Let me share the words of the prophet Amos to you, just as it is written, I will, after this I will return, I will rebuild the tent of David that has fallen, I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it. But then he gives his commentary on it, he interprets it, and this is what he says, that the remnant of all mankind may seek the Lord, and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord, who makes these things known from the old. And so what James is saying is, the interpretation of the book of Amos, or this passage in Amos, is that what God is doing, this new work, this restoration work, is the culmination of the Gentiles of all nations 
being brought in. Now, let's stop there. Now, notice I've put a question mark along each of these. I respect each of these positions. But here's what we need to recognize. Let's separate the forest from the trees. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament, here's a truth we need to remember. No eye has seen, no ear has heard what God has prepared for his people. Amen? And God has promised something in the future. Now, what are we to do with all of these interpretations? Can I tell you that as I look at it, I don't minimize myself to one particular position. As I look at each of these, here's what I do in my, in my study. In light, God's going to do something great in the future that he wrote in the book of Amos. Let's answer some questions. Did this promise come true in some way during the exile? The answer is yes. Did this remain true? Could this remain true for Israel in the future? The book of Revelation seems to say yes, that there will be a time of an outpouring of the Spirit of God, that the nation of Israel, ethnic Israel, will come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ and worship Him in spirit and in truth. The book of Revelation seems to say that will take place at a future time. So I say yes. Is it not true that God has used the church to rebuild things that have been destroyed. That God has used the church and, and that the harvest that the church is having is a bumper crop. The Bible says that what the church is doing will outnumber the sands of the seashore. So is that promise true? It seems like it's being fulfilled within the church. And can we not say that it's being done in salvation? Can we not say that that work that has been done, that we are people who God called out of darkness and brought us into his marvelous light? You see, I don't need to hold to one particular thing. I can say the work of God has bearing in all of these ways. And what that tells me is, listen, God is a faithful God, amen? So amidst God's faithfulness, let me close, and we're going to land a hard landing on this plane, to three questions we have to ask. Because life with God ends in triumph, and life apart from God ends in tragedy. That means life in God is proven through testing. So I don't want you to leave here being triumphant when you should be living the tragedy. Because you don't know God. But also, I don't want you to think, well, I'm still under the wrath of God when there's no now, now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. So how do I know if I'm one or two? It comes through testing. And what God does is he says, notice in the text, that he is going to drain all people through a sieve. Notice in the text, he's going to shake uh, the people through a sieve. This is a sieve. It comes from 5B's catering. We use this to separate the boiling water from the pasta we cook. Okay? You probably have one of these at home. And what God is saying is, the way you evaluate your life is you take the contents of your life and you pour it into the sieve, and what remains is what is good and right. Now, here's the thing. The sieve is not your good works. The sieve is not your church attendance. The sieve is not anything that you do. The sieve that God shakes all nations through is his son, Jesus Christ. And so the question is, when the life content, your life's contents are thrown through the sieve, what does Jesus keep? What does Jesus keep? And if Jesus keeps nothing then your life will end in tragedy. 
But if there are things that Jesus, because of the work of Jesus on the cross of Calvary, stuff stays, well, then you will experience great triumph on that great and glorious day. We sung about it. Oh, glorious day. So what do we do in light of that? Three things, and I'll let you think through them as you uh, leave this place. Three questions I want you to walk away with. Question number one, as we test ourselves to see if we're in the faith, are you too much like the world? Israel in the days of Amos was. Question number two, are you listening to his word? The people of Amos' day were not listening. They were not hearing the roar of the lion. And because of that, they lost out on the opportunity to be saved. And three, are you walking in his ways? The book of Amos over and over again invites us to seek God and live. If you cannot answer those questions in the affirmative, then the only thing you have to look forward to is tragedy and great calamity. But if you can say because of the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, what Tim and Nicole shared in their baptism story, that they desire nothing more than to live these three things out, then you can say, oh glorious day, that day when I will see my Savior face to face, I will not experience his wrath, I will not experience his, his anger and his indignation, but I will experience his overwhelming, amazing love, grace, and mercy. And on that day, my friends, we will be blown away because the best is yet to come. Amen? Let's pray. Father God, we come before you and we are reminded of these incredible truths. So I ask, Lord, that we would now not only simply be hearers of your word, but doers of your word as well. And so I ask that you would do a work on us, that you would take what we've learned in this whole series in the book of Amos and you would change us. But one truth, Lord, I pray that you would remind us of is your utter faithfulness. That you promise things and you tell us things. And either we can believe you to be a liar and go our own way, or we can believe you to be the faithful, truth-telling God. Lord, I pray that this remnant of people, the faithful here, will see you all together faithful and worship and praise you and look forward to the day that you will bring us into eternity into your marvelous light where we will live and reside with you forevermore. We love you and we ask for your blessing on our time as we close this service and song. I pray our hearts would be overwhelmed by your grace and mercy. We love you and give you the praise for it in Christ's name. Amen.